But we don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who do not have hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word of the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who are fallen asleep. For the Lord himself would descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be always with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everybody. I'm Charles McKnight, pastoral assistant here at Christ Central Church. And it's good to see you all here, safe home after your Christmas holiday, your Christmas travels. I hope Santa brought y'all everything that you wanted. I hope you got to see everybody that you wanted or needed to see. And I hope you were able just to have a good time relaxing some friends and some family. Charlotte, the girls, and I were able to spend some time with uh, both sides of our family this past week, drama-free. So we praise God for that. Amen? You know, major holidays, especially Christmas, can be a time of what I describe as hybrid emotions. Hybrid because Christmas can be both the brightest time of year and sometimes the darkest. It can be the brightest because of all the good times that come from blasting classic Christmas songs or drinking too much eggnog or eating too much macaroni and cheese. It can be the brightest from just the the joy of seeing kids all tangled up around the Christmas tree, the Christmas tree all lit up and well-decorated, cheap wrapping paper all over the place, and presents. And it can be the brightest because of all the joy that comes of just being surrounded by folks that love you and know way too many embarrassing stories about you. And all this to celebrate the day that Jesus Christ, our Savior, was born. Christmas can be, and rightfully so, the brightest time of year. But for some of us, this brightness came mixed with some dark realities this year. Many learned in the middle of Christmas preparations about the Newtown tragedy. Left 26 people dead. 20 of them children. Babies. The age of some of the kids sitting in here right now. For some in this room, your Christmas holiday was darkened by the reality of that friend or family member that's struggling for their life, even right now as I speak. And for too many of you, your holiday was all but completely swallowed up in darkness because of the recent death of someone close to you or the lingering memory of someone who used to share in the Christmas brightness, but who has died. For you, I could imagine, this holiday was filled with ache and sorrow and emptiness. Death. People die. 
old, young, rich, poor, red, yellow, black, and white. People die. Death has been described as the great antagonist that no man can tame. And it's easy when you're younger to go long periods of time without having to face this painful reality. But some of you can attest that as you grow older, those periods of voluntary non-reflection get shorter and shorter and shorter as more and more and more of the people you know, the people you love, die. Death is unavoidable. How does being reminded of that reality make you feel this morning? Sad? Surprised? Afraid? Agitated? Maybe you've just been so bombarded by tragedy and death that you feel nothing. You're numb. We, fall, we all find ourselves at some point groping in the gloom of grief for some type of real relief and hope in death. And so the question this morning is, does such a hope exist? Is there a hope that survives the grave? And if so, what is it like? And how do we get it? Well, our pastor this morning has much to say regarding these questions. Our text is part of a letter the Apostle Paul wrote to a church he helped plant in the city of Thessalonica. And earlier in this letter, if you were to read the first few chapters, you would learn that these new believers had gotten off to a remarkable start in their new Christian journey. Paul even praises them in chapter 1, telling them that people everywhere were talking about the Thessalonians' rock-solid commitment to their new Christian faith. And what's even more noteworthy, when we take into account what we learn in Acts chapter 17, that Paul and, and his ministry partner Silas were only able to stay there and teach them for a couple of weeks, maybe a month or two, before being hemmed up by an angry mob of Jews and then being arrested and then kicked out of the city. But it seems that the Thessalonians had been doing everything that they could do to live out those doctrines of the faith that Paul was able to teach them before he was forced to leave. Yet since Paul had left, death had crashed the party of the lives of these new believers. You see, some folks in the church had died. And naturally, the Thessalonians grieved these deaths, just like we do when we lose one of our loved ones. But something wasn't right. We learn in our passage that they were grieving in a way that was a little bit off. See, Paul had taught them a lot before he left, but apparently he hadn't gotten to the Christian death section of the curriculum. And so having heard about this situation, Paul attempts to comfort the Thessalonians by correcting their misunderstanding of the relationship between Christian death and the second coming of Christ. So Paul begins in verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. The verse says that the Thessalonians were uninformed. 
Some translations say that they were ignorant. They lacked the crucial knowledge about what it meant to die as a Christian. And although the common cliche would have you to believe that ignorance is bliss, ignorance for these grieving believers was certainly not bliss. I remember learning this truth, the fact that ignorance is not always bliss, very early on in life, in second grade. After school one day, I was walking a carpool with um, a second grade teacher. I don't even know if it was my second grade teacher or just a teacher that was helping you walk out. And for a reason that only heaven knows, I leaned over and I asked, This second grade teacher, something that I now know as a man, that no person, especially a man, should ever ask a lady. I took a look at her belly. And I asked, are you pregnant? I didn't know any better. My mama hadn't taught me that lesson yet. I was ignorant to this social norm. And what makes it so bad is she wasn't pregnant. And I felt bad. I don't even know how I knew to feel bad. I just did. And I'm sure she did too. You see, ignorance is not always bliss. Not knowing can cause you and others a whole lot of unnecessary grief. And similar was the Thessalonian situation. Their ignorance, too, had set them up for such unnecessary grief. The end of verse 13 tells us that they were either already or in danger of grieving as the world. The world being those outside of the Christian faith, outside of redemption, those who grieved without hope. So I ask you, how have you grieved? For some of you, how are you grieving right now? Has your grief been uninformed like the Thessalonians? Are you grieving as the world? Are you grieving like all hope is lost? Now let me be clear. Scripture does not condemn the expression of sincere grief and sorrow when someone you love dies. You were not wrong to cry at that funeral. You were not necessarily wrong to take off of work or to seek some support as you grieve that person's death. We know that Jesus himself, when brought to the place where his dear friend Lazarus lay dead, wept. Jesus wept. And the next verses in that passage tell us that his weeping was a result of and evidence for the fact that Jesus truly loved him. Hear me. It's okay to grieve. It's right to mourn. It's even necessary to be saddened by the death of someone who we truly love. The Lord is not condemning this. But what he is telling us is that this right human reaction and expression must be regulated, must be in line with and ultimately controlled by the superhuman reality of Christian hope. This hope is founded, it's based on, it's supported by what we see in verse 14. Look there with me. 
For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Y'all simply put, if you're a believer who has faith that God raised Jesus' body from the dead, then you must believe that God will likewise raise the bodies of believers, including you and your believing loved ones. And how can we be sure? Because this resurrection, like every other aspect of our salvation, doesn't rest on your own merit, but rather on your relationship, your connection, your union with Christ by grace. Through faith. Now, some of you all grew up in homes where one sibling did something wrong, you all got punished, right? Mama was gone and something got broke. When she got back, she was getting everybody. And it didn't matter if you thought your connection to your sibling's crime was undeserved. Because in Mama's eyes, what one did, y'all all did. Similar is the case with our union with Christ. Through our undeserved connection with Christ, through faith, what he did, we also did or will do. Romans 6 highlights this point telling us that Christ died for sin. And in his death, we died. And just as Christ was raised from the dead, so also will he raise our bodies when we enter the grave. Now, we believe according to Scripture that as soon as a believer dies their soul enters heaven, but their bodies rest, waiting for their resurrection when Christ returns. Do you believe this morning in the resurrection? Do you believe that Jesus actually got up from the dead? If you do, then the same surety in which you have in Christ's resurrection must be, according to our text, the same surety that you have that you and me and daddy and granny and grandpa and anyone else who dies in faith will rise. Death for the believer is not the end. I'm an English major. So in the syntax of life, it's not a period. It's a comma after which we will experience the resurrection of our renewed bodies and life everlasting. And this is the firm foundation of our hope in death. And with our hope founded, founded on our union with Christ, a union which guarantees our bodily resurrection, our hope is sustained, fortified, even in death. And this hope is not only founded on Christ, but also focused, focused on his coming return. Look at verse 15. For this we declare to you by word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Now we need to understand the intense focus which the Thessalonians had on the second coming of the Lord. Most of them actually thought Christ would return in their lifetime and looked forward to it constantly. If you notice here, Paul says we, including himself, 
and talking about the people that may still be alive when the Lord returns. The Thessalonians were focused. And they were right to be focused. They were right to always be looking forward to the coming of their Savior. But what some got wrong was the false assurance that the Lord would absolutely return before they died. The Gospels teach us that Jesus proclaimed that no man knows the minute nor the hour of his return. And Paul would remind the Thessalonians in the very next chapter of this book that Christ's return will be as unexpected as a thief in the night. So you see, their focus was right, but it was mixed with this bad assumption. And this toxic mix produced a huge dilemma. When folk in the church started to die and Christ hadn't come back yet, right? You could imagine all the questions and doubts this caused. Did this mean that those people that died weren't really saved? Did this mean that those that died wouldn't be able to experience the second coming? And you can even imagine how some might possibly even begin to be doubting that Christ would actually return. Some probably uh, even began to doubt that there was any hope left at all. And as we said earlier, this false understanding added all kinds of unnecessary grief. Again, ignorance is not bliss. So that was the scene back in Thessalonica. But I would argue, not so much in our church today. First off, when someone we love dies, as much as we mourn, most of us aren't losing sleep over whether Christ is still going to come back or not. Generally, Christ's return is not something we spend a whole lot of time thinking about. I mean, one reason I appreciate the Christmas holiday and the Advent and our liturgy and all that is that it forces me, it it forces me to think about Christ's first coming, right? Newborn baby in a manger. But there's no federal holiday to force me to think about sec- Christ's second and triumphant coming. The Thessalonians, from what I know, also didn't have a holiday to help them remember Christ's second coming. But they had something else that helped to constantly drive them to yearn for Christ's return. They had suffering. They experienced a tremendous amount of suffering. As mentioned earlier, persecution from the Jews was so bad that Paul was forced to dip. But they had to stay and endure. And we all know that suffering always leaves us groping for something better. It always leaves us looking for a hero. And the Thessalonians wanted their hero, Jesus, to come back and rescue them. And so they were focused. Yes, with a little bit of misunderstanding, but nonetheless rightfully focused on the return of King Jesus. But what are you focused on? What are we focused on? Do you believe that Jesus is coming back? When was the last time you spent some significant time just thinking about the impending reality of Christ's return. Has the ease and comfort of 21st century American suburban living or the excitement 
and allure of the new urban experience eroded your anticipation? Has it destroyed your deep, sincere longing for Jesus to come back and rescue you? Do you even feel like you need to be rescued? This isn't home. And don't be conned by the crack of comfort into believing that it is. I'm telling you from personal experience, I know how easy it is to believe that this is home. You get a new job, you get married, you start having babies, buying houses. And it's easy to forget that we're aliens, sojourners in a foreign land. You know what? The Bible actually affirms the cliche that there's no place like home. But it also tells us that home isn't here. And look, the enemy, Satan, he wants nothing more than for you to believe that it is. He wants you to be so consumed by building your heaven here on earth that you lose all real hope of eternity. Don't let the enemy deceive you. Don't let him mislead you. Don't be bamboozled into believing that this is home. In the grand scheme of eternity, this life is a flash. So like the Thessalonians, we have to keep our eyes in sharp focus. Focus on the reality of Christ's return to take us to our true home. Now, Paul didn't have to remind the Thessalonians to think about Christ's return. Again, they had that on point. But what he did need to do was educate them on the relationship between death and the second coming. So verse 15 clears things up. For this we declare to you by a word of the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. In other words, he's telling them, be encouraged. Hope is still intact. Christ is returning for his people, and none will be left out, dead or alive. And this, Paul reminds them, isn't just his hypothesis. This isn't just his wishful thinking. But this is a guarantee from the Lord himself. And you can imagine the sigh of relief, the comfort and consolation that this would have provided these folks. No more doubts, no more confusion. Yes, losing our loved ones is sad, and we're grieving, but Christ will return. He has not forgotten about his people, and their deceased brothers and sisters would not miss out on this glorious event. Y'all, this is the same comfort for us, too. This is our hope that Christ is really coming back to rescue those who are still alive. And to take with him those who have been buried. Please find encouragement in that, in your grief. And in verse 16, we get what may be the most vivid description of Christ's return in all the New Testament. And in this description, our focus transitions from the reality of Christ's return to the majesty of that great moment. Look at the beginning of verse 16. 
For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven, Paul begins. The Lord himself is coming back. Not some intermediary, not some angel, not some type of divine personal assistant, but Jesus himself will descend from heaven and usher in the end of the age. And he himself will gather his people. And when he comes, it won't be like his first coming. It won't be like the weak and vulnerable baby in a manger. No, our text tells us that he is going to come like a conqueror with an ear-ringing command, like a general to his troops, full of urgency and authority. And our text tells us that this earth-shaking, this earth-shattering moment will be accompanied by an archangel and the trumpet of God. Understand, the trumpet throughout Scripture symbolizes the sound of deliverance. You see, in that moment, Christ will proclaim literally throughout the universe that deliverance and liberation for all the children of God has arrived because the Redeemer and Judge of the world is here. And we will be, in that moment, completely transformed. Cancer, gone. Headaches, gone. Sin, gone. All the misery, all the suffering, all the pain and sorrow and death will be gone. And true justice will be served and complete everlasting joy will be ours. Can you even begin to imagine it? Can you even start to apprehend how many physical laws of the universe Christ will completely override to bring about this open, public, visible, and audible grand entrance for the whole world to see? Can you wrap your mind around the magnificence and splendor and power, the majesty that will appear in a flash and explode all of our senses in that great moment? Look. There's a lot of uh, cool movies out right now. We got the whole 3D IMAX action thriller experience. But that comes nowhere close to warranting mention in comparison to the experience of Christ's return. We need to invest, hear me, we need to invest our time into dreaming about this majestic day. Every once in a while, you should just take a break, stare out the window. And just imagine what that moment will be like. Every time you look at the sky, it's a sunny day today, thank God. You you leave church today, look up in the sky, look in the clouds. And when you see the sun peek through, allow your mind to imagine and be taken away by the thought of the magnificence and majesty of Christ's return. Brothers and sisters, focus on the return because Christ's return will be the culmination of our hope. And this hope that is focused on the reality and majesty of Christ's return and is founded, founded on our union with Christ will finally be fulfilled, fulfilled in the great reunion that will occur on that day. Look with me at the end of verse 16. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Verse 17, then we who are alive, who are left, 
will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. This will be the greatest and largest family reunion of all time. All those who are securely resting in the loving grip of Christ will be caught up, our text describes, with those who are still living, reunited together to meet their Redeemer. The word for caught up here literally means to grab or to seize suddenly, to snatch up or to take away. In the blink of an eye, the Lord will gather all his people asleep and awake, and we will meet together in the clouds. Now, whether these clouds are, you know, literal or symbolic, I don't know. The text doesn't say. But what it does say, and what you need to know, is that this will be the greatest reunion ever. This will be a reunion of every last one of God's people since the beginning of time. Think about it. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, King David, Mary and Joseph, the apostles, and the saints in the church of Thessalonica will all be there. And if truly believers, your mother, your father, your grandmother and grandfather, your brother, your sister, your sons and daughters, my wife, my girls, myself and you will all be there. And we will be there, united with Christ, never to be separated again. And it will be in this great moment that our great hope that was founded on our union with Christ and focused on the reality and majesty of that day will finally reach its grand fulfillment. I'm African-American, in case you haven't noticed. And my people, my ancestors, were kidnapped shackled, and held in this country as slaves for hundreds of years. I just saw that Lincoln movie on Wednesday and was reminded by this, the sickening legacy of slavery in this country, especially in the South. And it blows my mind how somehow in the Lord's mighty sovereignty, despite the disgusting hypocrisy of so-called Christian chattel slave owners, Some of my people became believers. But you better believe that these enslaved Christians didn't fall prey to believing that the plantation was home. They greatly longed for the Lord's return to remove their chains, spiritually and physically. They longed for the Lord to return and to take them to their true home. And they knew that when the Lord returned, that there would be a great reunion with those that death, and evil slave traders had snatched away from them. And our hymns, our Negro spirituals as some call them, permeate with this intense longing to experience the second coming of Jesus and to experience that great reunion. One such song is titled, Soon I Will Be Done. It goes, soon I will be done with the trouble of this world going home to live with God. No more weeping and wailing. I'm going to live with God. I want to see my mother. I'm going to live with God. I want to see my Jesus. 
I'm going to live with God. They knew that their hope would only be truly fulfilled when they were able to experience the great reunion, when they would go and live with God. So I ask you this morning, are you looking forward to your hope being fulfilled? When we, with our believing loved ones, go home and be with God, are you? I pray that you are. For hope's sake. Paul concludes our text by reminding us of what we are to do with all that he has just revealed. He writes in verse 18, Therefore, therefore, in light of all I've just revealed, therefore, in light of the hope founded, focused, and fulfilled on and in Christ, therefore, Paul exhorts, encourage one another with these words. You see, this passage These words, these truths are here for you to use as a healing balm for broken hearts. Here is the perfect comfort and hope for your soul. Here is your comfort and hope in death. There is hope in death, but we must be clear must be clear about something that's implied all throughout this passage. That this is a Christian hope. For Christians, when facing their own death, or when dealing with the deaths of fellow Christians, make no mistake, there will be no great reunion for those outside of a union with Christ. That may be unsettling for some of you. But let that unsettling reality rattle you. Let it shake you out of any complacent attitude that you may have developed regarding your own soul or the souls of others. Understand, Christ's return, the glorious return illustrated in our passage, will be absolutely decisive. He will not come to convert, but to rescue And to judge. So now, today is the day of salvation. Now, not then. Then it will be too late. None of you all know when death's going to visit you. Could be 50 years from now, could be tomorrow. But right now, hope in life and hope in death is here. So hear me, if you have not put your faith in Christ who guarantees this hope, do it. Do it. For a lot of us who have already laid claim to this hope, if we're honest, we've been at times stingy with offering it to others. Now some of you don't struggle sharing your hope. And I praise God for you. But for a lot of us, and look, I'm including myself. I'm in seminary. I'm up here preaching to you. I want to do this with my life. And I struggle. And look here, especially at Christ Central, look, we are expert bridge builders. We can build a relational bridge like nobody else. 
But some of us struggle when it comes to walking people across that bridge to hope. If we're honest, we haven't always done the best job of loving people enough to talk to them about Jesus and the gospel story, the only story that can give people true hope in life and in death. I know it's tough for some of you, but you can start today, right now, everybody. Just think of one person. I know this sounds corny to some of y'all because it sounds corny to me when I just said it. But just think of one person, one person that you know that doesn't yet have the hope that you have and that you haven't shared it with yet. One person that you already have a real relationship with, somebody that you've already built that bridge with. It could be a friend, some of the teenagers and kids in here. It can be a classmate, a teammate, a family member, a neighbor, a coworker. One person. And I encourage and challenge you to commit to pray that the Lord will give you the overwhelming desire and the opportunity and the boldness to open your mouth and tell them about this hope that you have. And I want you to keep praying for them and your boldness until the Lord blesses you to help lead them to this hope. Please share this hope. Y'all know it's New Year's resolution time. And for most of us, our resolutions don't make it to Valentine's Day. But make this one that does. Look, I'm just crazy enough to believe that the Lord is using my words right now to get somebody over that hump that's been standing in your way from already doing this. Please, don't be tight-fisted with the currency of eternity. There is hope in death. Believe it. Be encouraged by it. And share it.